0: This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court announced today that they will not hear a request from frack sand operator Meteor Timber to reinstate a permit in Wisconsin. Wisconsin Public Radio reports that the request was denied by the court, upholding a lower court's ruling blocking the frac sand facility from being built in Monroe County. Meteor Timber was originally issued a permit to build the facility by the DNR back in 2017, but it was blocked by a judge one year later after the permit was challenged by Clean Wisconsin, Midwest Environmental Advocates, and the Ho-Chunk Nation. The latest move puts an end to a years-long court battle.
1: Two more state lawmakers announced they are retiring today. Representative Sandy Polk, a Democrat from Mount Horeb, is the latest to announce retirement. Polk was first elected to the assembly in 2002 and says she wants to spend more time with family and friends. Representative Nick Milroy of South Range is also leaving the assembly. Milroy was first elected in 2008. The two joined seven other Democrats and 13 Republicans in the assembly who are not seeking re-election this fall six wisconsin state senators are also retiring this year
0: a tenant at 131 west wilson the building that's home to restaurant paisans is suing the building owner over the demolition notice filed earlier this week nicholas yaniello rents an office on the 12th floor of the building and says that he was given a quote bogus order to leave reports the wisconsin state journal Earlier this year, Yellow says that he negotiated a new, shorter lease with Executive Management Inc., which owns the building, and he had agreed to move out in January 2023. He says this new demolition notice will force him out of the building months before his lease expires. And now on to today's top stories.
1: Madison's bus rapid transit overhaul of the city's bus system got another step closer to completion last night, as the City Transportation Commission approved the purchase of 46 fully electric buses. WORT producer Nate Wiggehout has more.
2: Last night, the Madison Transportation Commission unanimously approved the next step of the bus rapid transit process, outlining where stops would be located throughout the city. Also approved at last night's meeting was the purchase of 46 electric buses for use in the bus rapid transit. Originally, the city had planned to buy just 27 electric buses and 14 diesel buses. Justin Sturmberg is the general manager of the city's Metro Transit.
3: The Infrastructure and
2: Jobs Act or the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill was passed in November of last year, which dramatically increased funding for electric buses in general and the small starts program specifically. And so as part of that, we did have a conversation with the FTA about potentially increasing our grant award to allow us to bring the entire fleet to electric for BRT, um, whereas previously we'd planned to do roughly two-thirds electric and one-third diesel. And in the... 2023 budget that the president just proposed, um, they did allocate those additional dollars to the the Madison BRT project, meaning that uh, that allows us to increase the the project to full electric uh, without any additional local money there the feds would cover 100 percent those buses will be bought from the company new flyer who are the only company the city looked at that made electric buses at the length they required they are also the only bus looked at that has doors on the left side of the bus According to Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway, the city's current buses use over 5,600 gallons of diesel fuel each year. The buses will also save up to $125,000 in maintenance costs each year for each vehicle due to the fact that they don't have engines, transmissions, intakes, or exhaust systems. The other highlight of last night's meeting, the exact placement of bus stops around Madison. While the current bus system has bus stops on the side of the road, the plan for bus rapid transit is to place 21 out of 31 of the stops in the median of busy roads such as midvale boulevard and regent street madison alder charles miadze represents part of madison's north side and sits on the transportation commission
3: i haven't heard about too much of the safety besides people crossing the street um with already we have a seen a lot of accidents happening already about people crossing streets. So there is that concern about pedestrians crossing the street after uh, exiting the bus. The bus rapid
2: transit line would run from east to west throughout the city, and it's not to be confused with the ongoing network redesign plan. Miadze says that deciding to move forward with bus rapid transit before network redesign is a mistake. I think that this
3: process was done backwards because of simple fact of the matter is that when the federal funding was brought about, the BRT, it was to make sure, ensure that people can get to where they need to go. The redesign should have happened first in order to ensure that people get to where they need to go. To focus on other parts of the city, mainly the east to west corridor, which is mostly the college corridor, rather than the residents of the city that has been Here throughout 20, 30 years paying their taxes, they should have been focused, number one focus. Sternberg says,
2: however, that bus rapid transit has to come first because network redesign would not have qualified for any federal funding, a crucial step in upgrading the city's bus system. He says that by starting with bus rapid transit, they could use those federal funds to up-create infrastructure that would then make network redesign much easier to accomplish. The final plan to purchase the buses and to approve the new stops is set to be taken up by the full council at their meeting next Tuesday. Construction is slated to begin later this year, with the project expected to be completed by the summer of 2024. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate wiggy Holt.
0: Many workers in the construction industry aren't making a living wage, according to a new report. And experts say that some employers are using illegal methods to cut labor costs by any means necessary. Jonah Chester with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
4: A new report finds declining wages in the construction industry fueled by wage theft and payroll fraud are pushing more construction workers into social support programs. The analysis by the Labor Center at the University of California, Berkeley Finds between about 12 and 21 percent of construction workers across the country are either misclassified as independent contractors or paid under the table, depriving them of health insurance and other employer-provided benefits. Secretary Peter Barca of the Wisconsin Department of Revenue says that's cheating.
5: These scammers, many of whom are coming into the state surreptitiously, they're cheating the state out of revenue. Worse, they're cheating uh, workers by misclassifying them. They're cheating law-abiding companies within this state, and they really cheat everybody.
4: The report notes 15% of construction workers in Wisconsin don't have health insurance, more than twice the rate of all workers in the state, and $207 million is spent annually on social support programs, such as SNAP and Medicaid, to support families of construction workers. Last month, a task force impaneled by Governor Tony Evers released new recommendations to tackle wage theft and payroll fraud, which include bolstering penalties and tracking policies for the illegal practices. Barca says it's difficult to nail down exactly how much money has been lost to payroll fraud in Wisconsin in recent years. As the state's report describes it, wage theft is an underground economy hidden from regulators.
1: I'll give you an
5: example. When contractors or companies come into the state, they're obligated under state law to register with the Department of Financial Institutions. But many of them don't do it, and uh, DFI has no authority to find them, to penalize them, and uh, even to
6: investigate them.
4: Barca says he'd like to see lawmakers take up some of the task force's recommendations during next year's legislative session. Adam Dunning with the North Central State's Regional Council of Carpenters Union says adopting such laws would benefit all taxpayers.
2: Construction industry tax fraud affects everybody. You have this workforce that's not being paid Payroll taxes aren't paid on them. Unemployment insurance, health care that they may use, it ends up costing us as taxpayers. We have to pick up the tab.
4: Per the UC Berkeley report, more than a quarter of families of construction workers in Wisconsin are enrolled in a social support program that's significantly lower than the national rate for construction families of nearly 40 percent. Almost a fifth of Wisconsin's construction workers are in a union, compared with just over 13 percent nationally. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our 8 trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's
1: now 6:15 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Earlier this week, a Waukesha County judge ruled that the State Department of Natural Resources cannot force companies to clean up or even report PFAS contamination until they officially rule them as hazardous. This can be a years-long process, with the DNR recently having to restart the years-long process. One community affected by PFAS contamination is the city of Marionette in northeastern Wisconsin. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wiggy helped spoke with the former mayor of Marionette, Doug Oisinger. So, Doug, just to begin, what's been happening
2: up in Marionette? How long has the city known that they've had a PFAS problem?
3: Well, this became public in late uh, 2017 when it was revealed that uh, private wells in the town of Peshtigo had been contaminated with PFAS, and that's the first time Probably anybody up here ever heard of the term PFAS and uh, that it was used in firefighting foam and that it had spread off of the uh, fire technology center, which is in the city of Marinette, and contaminated wells in our neighboring township of uh, town of Heshtigo.
2: And so this all came from the Tycho facility, correct? That's where the PFAS contamination came from. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that sits right near the Menominee River. Has, has anyone found PFAS in the water of that river or anywhere that that river runs into?
3: Well, actually, Tyco uh, Johnson Controls, which now owns Tyco, um, they have several facilities here. The one that is... Mostly discussed and and is in the news is the fire technology center, which is not next to the river. It's uh it's more in a uh, at the edge of town, uh, in a large over 300 acre uh, area that Tyco owns. They do have another facility that is right next to the river, and that it has contamination as well. And yes, the river has been tested. There is um, some PFAS in the river. Um, it's at much lower levels than what's in the groundwater.
2: And then how have the residents been reacting to this news? And then sort of going off of that, what has Tycho and the DNR been doing to sort of try and remedy this problem?
3: Well, like anything, uh, if it directly affects you, your reaction is, is more um, intense so if you live in the town of Peshtigo and you have a private well and it's been contaminated and you're drinking, essentially you've been drinking bottled water for you know, five years now, going on five years, uh, uh, you're pretty upset about it. And there's, there's less of a reaction in the city limits because we're on municipal water. And while we have some PFAS in the municipal water, it's at pretty low levels. Um, is certainly safe levels uh, under current science. So it depends on where you live and what your situation is of the people that are most acutely affected in the town of Peshtigo, which is roughly a block and a half from where I live. So I'm on the southern end of the city and block and a half down, my neighbors are on private wells uh, and they're contaminated. So This is a big concern, a lot of anxiety, and everything swirling around this uh, is very intense for the folks in the town of Peshego. Less less so in the city of Marinette, even though it affects us, but not as uh, directly and uh, as uh, intensely as if we were drinking it.
2: And so now I want to turn to what happened earlier this week. Can you tell me a little bit about the court case that happened in Waukesha County this week?
3: Well, the Wisconsin Manufacturers and Commerce, or WMC, uh, they filed a lawsuit in Waukesha. Uh, you know, it, it was a very intentional, where do you file the lawsuit and what judge do you get kind of lawsuit to essentially strip the DNR from using the uh, spills law, which has existed in this state since 1978, to uh, try to remediate and um, and uh, protect people from PFAS contamination spills. We don't have any uh, established regulations on PFAS, but the spills law uh, is a broad law which says if there's a hazardous material that's been spilled um, uh, companies and individuals have a re- uh, responsibility to report it, and then you develop a uh, investigation plan and ultimately a remediation plan. So what happened in court was uh, the judge ruled in favor of WMC and has basically reversed 44 years of the Spills Law protecting the environment and human health in our state from uh, contamination and uh, basically said if you haven't gone through all the rulemaking, which takes years and years and years to establish regulations on a specific compound um, you can't use the spills law to tell a corporation or business to do anything about it
2: and doug when you heard about this ruling what was sort of your reaction to the ruling made by this judge
3: well I'm involved. I'm a client of Midwest Environmental Advocates, and we attempted when this lawsuit was first filed. A number of clients, uh, individuals, and organizations attempted to join in the defense of the DNR. We basically got put over on a holding pattern and said, "Well, you're you're friends of the court in this action, but you're not directly uh, allowed to do your own." Thing in court, and I'm not an attorney, so I'm going to use some layman's terms that way. So I, I witnessed, uh, I was watching it online. I watched the court hearing and the judge's decision, and I was appalled. And uh, it's the rationale behind it. It was basically the judge took everything WMC said and just regurgitated it, and seemed to ignore. 44 years of history uh, in this state on the spills law.
2: And so I want to talk a little bit about sort of the ramifications of this ruling as well, because uh, the ruling said that they couldn't force a cleanup unless the specific chemical had been clearly defined by the DNR, which the DNR does not have a list of clearly defined chemicals. So this could, in theory, sort of, go to other sort of chemical spills as well. Are there any other things that are happening up in Marinette County that you are concerned about with the cleanup now?
3: Well, specifically, we're talking about the various PFAS compounds. and uh, But the judge's ruling uh, really pulled the rug out from under any type of contamination where the DNR has not uh, established a regulatory uh, standard for it at this time. And establishing a regulatory standard is a a, a very long process. We've been trying to get standards on PFAS. We're in our fourth year now. And on groundwater, uh, it just recently went before the uh, uh, Natural Resources Board. And they failed to set a standard. The DNR recommended a standard. And the Natural Resources Board, which you may know there's a lot of controversy over the members on that board one refusing to step down and let a new appointee uh, join the board um, they took no action on a groundwater standard and that's after more than 3 years of work to develop a standard and so if i could you know just put this in context if this ruling were to stand the Tyco Johnson Controls would have had no obligation to report this PFAS spill on their property. There would be no authority for the DNR to be telling them to provide bottled water and point of entry system treatments uh, for homeowners who had poisoned wells. There'd be no authority of the DNR to say you need to develop an investigation plan and a remediation plan. They could just basically uh, could have not reported it at all. And the, those people would still be drinking the poisoned water and it would all be legal. It's a horrible ruling.
2: Doug, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us here today?
3: Well, we really hope that the judge's ruling can be overturned on appeal. But should this not happen, uh I'm inf- afraid we're endangering thousands upon um, thousands, and that's not exaggeration, thousands of people in Wisconsin as we're learning more and more about PFAS contamination and where it's spread. It's not just Marinette. It's in Rhinelander. It's in Wausau. It's in the town of Campbell by La Crosse. It's in Milwaukee. It's in Green Bay. I say if if you aren't worried about PFAS, it's because you haven't looked for it yet, and once you start looking for it, you're going to find it. Maybe you'll find it in, in, in uh, concentrations that are not a serious concern, but already we have many, many serious concerns where this contamination exists. So this is a, this is a frightening ruling on the part of the judge in Waukesha.
2: I've been talking with Doug Oitzinger, the former mayor of Marinette, who came back to politics after learning about the PFAS happening in both Marinette and Peshtigo. Doug currently sits on the city council of Marinette. Doug, thank you so much for talking with me here today.
3: Thank you.
1: And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Please stay with us. We've got lots more stories coming up
0: fermenting Wart looks at the latest craze in the beer world hazy ipas transparency talk opens up its pocketbook to talk about how much you can be charged for records and radio chipstone meets a bodybuilder turned artist
1: but first we'll take a quick break check in on some world headlines and we'll be right back Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us.
0: This week on our beer feature, Fermenting Wart, feature contributor Colin Morgan discusses a trendy beer style, the hazy IPA.
5: Hype beers. Everybody loves a good hype beer. Today on Fermenting Wart, we will be talking about hazy beers. Why are they hazy? Why people like them? And if they actually are a quote-unquote style. For some time now, when I occasionally ask a casual brewery goer what their favorite type of beer is, the answer is hazy. Not hazy IPA or something like that, just hazy. It seems that haze for the casual beer drinker has become something of a style. Or, at the very least, the haze comes with an expected flavor. This new trend in haziness, especially for IPAs, is really not even that new, but it seems to have taken over as a good way to get beer out the door of breweries. So what is haze anyway? Prior to haze being trendy, cloudy beer was usually described as having colloidal instability and it comes from a multitude of places throughout the brewing process. Imagine you could look into one of those big stainless steel fermenters at your favorite brewery as the beer is fermenting away. Typically, those fermenters are designed as a large cylinder placed on top of an upside-down cone. We in the industry call that the cylindroconical vessel. Geometry is so much fun. This special cylindroconical design allows fermenting beer to mix itself inside the vessel. If you could watch this mixing happen, you'd see yeast, sometimes hops, proteins, and lipids. All of these components moving in the fermenter as it's fermenting make for a really hazy, turbid liquid. This is practically true of all beers as they are working. Even if the wort they came from started off sparkly, clean, and clear, the resulting fermentation is usually hazy. That is one source of haze. Beer sold young, sometimes straight from the fermentation tank, has not had enough time for the yeast and those other components to settle out and is hazy. This beer is just fine to drink. Some styles actually depend on it being served young. The zwickel beer or Keller beer is a traditional german style served fresh sometimes straight from the fermenter but usually from a dedicated serving vessel it is typically medium bodied and golden but there can be darker variants as well all of those should have a slight haze due to the beer being young i imagine that some of the hype breweries around nowadays deploy this particular tactic to sell their beer ferment it fast serve it young and the hipsters will come so What about IPA? The hazy IPA, quote-unquote, term probably came around the mid-2000s. The Alchemist Brewery in Stowe, Vermont, which, by the way, is absolutely fantastic to visit, is usually credited with creating the first of the modern hazy IPAs with their Heady Topper IPA. They buck the trend of super bitter IPAs. was going around in the early 2000s up through 2010 maybe and instead focused on hop aroma and flavor in their ipa Hetty topper is absolutely loaded with hops probably intensely dry hopped if i had to guess adding lots of hop flavor and almost none of the bitterness and that has been the trend of ipas pretty much ever since now hops are a plant the hop cone or hop flour, contains bittering acids and flavorful aromatic oils and resin. Brewers want both the acids and the oils in their IPAs to balance the beer, as well as create a more flavorful product. But that's not all that comes with a hop when it's added to a brew. Leaves, stems, and sometimes even little bits of twine uh, make it into the fermenter as well. Now plant material like the hop leaves contain chemical compounds known as polyphenols. These polyphenols combine with protein in the beer to create larger molecules, complex compounds, that cause a visible haze. That is why many consumers associate the haze in an IPA with hop flavor and aroma. The more hops you add, the hazier the beer could become. Really, what this all boils down to is an experience Beer is not just flavor and aroma in the glass. There have always been factors other than just flavor that influence how you taste or what you taste in a beer. The shape of the glass, for example, directs light in certain ways to show depth of color or clarity as well as funnel aroma into your nose. A nice finger of foam, perhaps, on top of your beer is very aesthetically pleasing and invites a sip. Brewers have always known that it's not just flavor that brings customers in the door. When beer drinkers started associating haze with a specific type of beer, brewers latched onto that and started dialing it up. There are clever ways of putting haze into beer. And because nowadays it is associated with bright hop aroma and usually tropical type of flavors, brewers are specifically creating recipes that meet that demand. The craft hop industry even is now pushing hop varieties that pack big tropical or citrus punch. It's mango and pineapple, orange and lemon zest. Brewers use those varieties and cleverly pack as much haze as they can into an IPA to create a visual and intensely aromatic experience. So is haze a style? No, haze is not really a style. Haze can come intentionally or unintentionally in any beer style. While there might, and I emphasize might, be mouthfeel effects from the haze, I don't think there's much good evidence of flavor contributions from the haze. Now, what about hazy IPA? Is that a style? Looking historically at how styles emerge, the hazy IPA does seem to follow how other tried-and-true styles solidified themselves. Customers experience something unexpected and novel. Brewers then recreate and define production procedures, and an expected beer profile emerges. Even the hop and malting industries are getting in on it and marketing specific products for brewers for hazy IPA beers. This does seem to point to a style that will make it past the fad stage. That being said, it really is all game to get beer out the door. As my professor at UC Davis, Charlie Bamforth, put it, we spend our entire career trying to get haze out of the beer just to have people tell us to put the blasted stuff back in again. So next time you pick up a glass of hazy IPA or any other hazy beer, maybe think about what's going into it, why it tastes the way it does, and if it would taste the same without the haze. Before I go, I did want to plug a couple of events that are coming up. Saturday, April 30th, is the Dell's Rare Barrel Affair, a fantastic barrel-aged beer festival. Tickets are online if you are interested. And May 1st, tickets for the Madison Homebrewers and Tasters Guild Great Taste of the Midwest go on sale. Information is on their website. Thanks again for listening. This is Formenting Wirt. And in the words of Ram Das, beer here
1: now This week on Transparency Talk, Tom Kemenick and Jonah Chester discuss fees and what custodians can and cannot charge for records. A quick note, this conversation isn't specific legal advice. Please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government.
4: All right. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week?
7: Jonah, I'm good, but I've got a question for you. How much do you think it costs to copy one piece of paper?
4: Well, you know, I have an answer, but I'm sure government entities have a separate answer. I'm going to take a smack at this. For me, Maybe five cents. I don't know what current inflationary rates are, but I guess like anywhere from five to 10 cents. Tell me why that's maybe not such a straightforward answer, Tom.
7: Yeah, if you ask your typical government record custodian how much they might tell you 25 cents because they are allowed to charge you what is their quote actual necessary and direct cost of copying a record. And it's really common for them to charge 25 cents. And if you look into the history of this, you can figure out why, because up until about 2018, the Department of Justice, the Wisconsin Department of Justice said that those costs are probably around 15 cents per page and anything over 25 cents per page is suspect, which of course everybody viewed as permission to charge 25 cents. But in 2018, DOJ scraps that guidance and says, you know what? You should actually calculate this. Figure out what you're paying for your paper and your copy machine, divide it up by uh, by how many pages you're printing, and you get your actual necessary and direct costs. And when the DOJ did that, they came up with 1.35 cents.
4: A little over 1 cents compared to the 25 cents they were charging. Have Have the courts weighed in on this at all? Have the courts gotten real granular about, like, No, the exact cost is 4.87 cents exactly.
7: Not yet, but that's one of the projects here at The Project is we are actually litigating this against a town that is trying to charge 50 cents per page. And so I've got a whole long brief I filed last week about how you should actually calculate this. And and this is how I approach it. So you got the statutory language. It says actual, necessary, direct. What's an actual cost? That's easy. It's what they're actually paying. You should be able to see they should show you receipts for what they are paying. What's necessary, that's pretty easy too. It has to be something they need in order to make copies, not something convenient or helpful, but something they literally can't do without it. What's direct, that might be a little tougher, but here's how I see this is a direct cost has to go up proportionally with the number of copies you're making. So if one copy takes one piece of paper, a hundred copies takes a hundred pieces of paper, that's proportional one copy takes you know some tiny little drop of ink or toner a hundred copies takes a hundred times as much of, of that tiny amount but it's something like buying a copier well you're gonna buy a copier every few years no matter how much you're do, you're printing on it and if they have zero record requests in a year if they have a hundred record requests in the year they still need a copier either way so it might be a necessary cost but it's not a direct cost so in my briefs i argue three things you get to count one i said A copy takes a piece of paper. How much does a piece of paper cost? A carton of $5,000 if you're buying in bulk, about $30, $30 to $35. That's about 0.6 cents, so a little bit more than half of a cent. You need ink or toner because you need something to go onto that paper as you're printing it. The prices here do vary quite a bit between are you using name brand or generic or just even what brand of printer are you using, uh, I found prices ranging from 0.7 cents for generic ink in uh, an Epson printer I'd looked at all the way up to six cents a page for this name brand HP. HPs are kind of infamous for being very expensive to print on. Technically too, I think electricity actually is an actual necessary and direct cost because it goes up. You need about 10 times as much electricity to print 10 times as many copies, but the cost is so minuscule, it doesn't even matter because it's literally in the thousands. Of a cent, point zero 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 five is about the range I'm, I'm finding things in.
4: So then, what falls under a, a non included cost? What what can't they charge you for essentially when they're when they're filling these records?
7: Like I said, I don't think they should try to wrap in the cost of the printer, or the copier itself, because they need that for doing their ordinary government business anyway. Unless they get so many record requests, they buy one just for those. Uh, it's not a necessary cost. Yeah, things like this town is trying to wrap in things like insurance costs and support and maintenance. But you know, if you're doing an annual checkup on your computer equipment, you're doing that regardless of how many record requests you're getting there. Those things aren't proportional. So getting kind of back to that first question of, 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 what does it cost? If you go to printers, Jonah, you ever pay to have something printed at your local Kinko's or anything?
4: Oh man, I am I have never been to a Kinko's, a Staples. I've never printed anything at one of those. I'm all digital, man. I'm all paper free.
7: Well, I just got my invoice for printing the briefs in this case and the printer in, the, in this case charged me 12 and a half cents a page and this this is pretty typical. 11 or 12 cents is what you might pay on uh, a real small town maybe you're paying uh paying more because costs of labor get a little more difficult but it doesn't cost them 50 cents to make that copy because if it did they'd be losing a whole lot of money charging you only 12 cents probably cost them a whole lot less than that because i imagine the markup on on print jobs they are be doing quite a bit because that's the way they're trying to make uh trying to make money running their business but it's almost certainly less than that 11 or 12 cents.
4: Now, before we before we sort of jump into the final part of our conversation here today, I'd like to highlight, because we've talked about this before, about, you know, why these costs can become exorbitant, but I'd like to rehash it for folks who might not, like, you know, they hear, oh, 25 cents a page, that can't be that bad. But I think what a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of times when you file open records requests, it's not like four or five pages. You're getting hundreds to sometimes thousands to. In certain cases, maybe even tens of thousands of pages, and that can really add up. And if you're an organization like the I don't know, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who has Gannett as a corporate backer, they might be able to swing that or like a political campaign might have the funds to swing that. But for the average person filing records requests, you know, even just like a hundred dollar charge to get records, that can be just a make or break type deal
7: it turns people off. People give up when they get uh, bills like that, especially if, like you said, if they're on their own and uh, they don't have a group of people backing them, that's that's too much for them. So, you know, aside from cost of making copies, remember, you can always ask for things electronically. If the files exist electronically, you can get them that way. And that avoids this whole problem. But if you need to make copies and they're trying to tell you it's 25 cents, push back.
4: Go for the Go for the paper-free route if possible. It's better for the environment too, probably. I actually don't know enough about. I don't know enough to say that with authority, but I'm just going to guess that it's better for the environment. Um, do people
7: still put uh, "Please don't print this email. Save the environment" on the <laughs> bottom of their emails signatures I, these
4: days? I have never seen that before, so I'm going to say no. They don't do that anymore. You know, Tom. I think what appeals to the to the broader listening audience about our segment it was we dive into really pulse pounding stuff on this feature, like. What exactly is the cost of a piece of paper? That's the kind of granular analysis we're dedicated to on Transparency Talk. But unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time for today. I've been joined as always by Tom Kamenek, founder and president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, thanks so much for joining me again this week.
7: I hope you all enjoyed our blended Money Matters and Transparency Talk uh, podcast. We'll call, Wait, it,
4: <laughs> we'll call it. We'll call it. Transparency matters for this week. Transparency alone. matters
7: because remember, if you don't ask, you won't know.
0: It's six fifty p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Question: Is there a common thread between bodybuilding and monumental paintings? Well, for Comfort's Wasikongo, the connection runs deep. His current exhibition is entitled Body of Knowledge, and it opens this Friday at the James Watrous Gallery. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Wasikongo, also known as Macho Cove in his bodybuilding days, tells contributor Jennifer Fields about his love of knowledge, bodybuilding, and family, and how it inspires his work.
6: My first um, introduction to art was through my mother, who um, was an artist and still is an artist in her own right, Frida Highwasihongo Tesfagorgis, who um, did the mural on the south side of the south side of Madison, across the street from Mount Zion. And um, I witnessed that, and that kind of was my first introduction to really the real world in art and in, in art in it.
8: so to speak. So, for you growing up, art was just a part of life. It wasn't this. It wasn't this thing that was done by others. It was something that was an, a natural,
6: normal occurrence in your house. Yeah, You know, much like people watch TV, mm-hmm. y'all were doing art. Mm-hmm. Not not only were we were doing art, but we were learning about places in Africa through our, you know, Tom Feelings and, and Jumbo means hello, Moja means one. My mother would read those books over and over to us. And also she would help us to draw. She would, she would take our hands, mine and Odalo's, and we would see something on TV, like a cheetah or a lion or an elephant, and we would say, "You know, we saw that in Tom Feelings' book. Could you help us learn how to draw that, please?" And she would do it. She would take her time out, and we would also see her putting putting together different colors, different pastel colors, different works, you know. And we were just filled with all this color and all of this stuff, and it was just it was just important for for us to start that foundation young, and, and so we could grow up inspired to be artists or whatever we wanted to
8: be. Now, what's the title of the piece that was inspired by the cover of depression?
6: Okay. So the title of the piece is called Medea's Blues. And it's, it's a piece that was strongly about family and going back to my mother's roots in Chicago. And these are certain family members um, that are uh, my mother's nieces and my mother's nephews. And You could look at the the other figures as me and my brother Odalo, or you can look at them and get your own impressions of who they might be. But the overall story is my grandmother, who was a very beautiful spirit, her name was Freddie Hydrongo, and she just raised 12 beautiful kids. They're all in the arts. What you see here could be considered my cousins or my cousins and their friends, and they all have these white gloves on to remind us about the church and the spirituality of our generation and our black experience.
8: You know what's interesting about this one, Comfort, is that it's a large
6: piece. And I feel like if I stood close to it, I would feel like I'm a part of it. Was that intentional? Yeah, I like to do that with all my work. All my work is monumental. And that's one trait that I got looking at my mother's work, looking at my mother's figures, is the colors and how monumental she would make black people in general in her works. She's got to work at our house that is Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, and they are both larger-than-life figures. You can see King's hands and the, dr- the drama that he would bring and thinking about the, the shackles coming off of his wrists and being freed as people from slavery. And then in the background, you would see the old way things were, with the slaves being, being small and not as important, but the King figure and the Rosa Parks figure are together, in Harmony being very large. So when I paint my people, I paint them very large. that's one thing that attracted me to bodybuilders. Not only do I like the effort and the amount of strength and the amount of size, but I also characterize that with how Martin Luther King was a man who didn't use violence. Now this sport, bodybuilding, it doesn't use violence. It uses a a type of determination that I think men like King had, men like who are thinkers, men like Malcolm X had, men like E. Franklin Frazier had, who was another part of my whole experience here and learning about him after I graduated from Temple you know, and all these other thinkers.
8: It's like comfort, people would think that bodybuilding and art are just two such separate worlds. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the attention to detail, the time, the physical evidence of progress and the physical evidence of change mm-hmm. that you see in both as you work on the piece of art and both as you work on your body.
6: That's very important. In fact, one of my favorite bodybuilders, Kai Green, spoke and said this um, in one of the documentaries, he said that um, his body was his PhD. It was his body of work that he worked on for the last 20 years, as if he was a doctor, sculpting his heart, sculpting his veins, sculpting his bones, becoming this doctor of himself. So he's, so in a sense, that progression that you speak of is the progressing of as mental as physical.
8: When you consider the fact that your bodybuilding and your work as an artist was so enmeshed, is that fair to say, yes. at some point? Yes. Do you get that same sort of feeling when you're working on a piece of art? Do you feel like that? It's just, the lifting weight is like such concentration and such a physical act that yeah. you really have to rely on your body and your brain. Yeah. Do well, you tap back into that, even though you're still not doing physically?
6: Marco Margolis, um, who's a professor of mine at Temple University, in fact, she always talked about having physicality in work. So it's that love that I'm putting into it from bodybuilding to pay attention to something that only I really hold tight and deeply. Just looking at it, mm-hmm.
8: even though it's a painting on a wall mm-hmm. and it's static, yeah. there's movement in this piece and you can almost You can get the feeling of them coming together in the chatter and they're laughing and you know how it is when you try to get family members together, you jostle, you laugh, Mm -hmm. you cut up a little bit, somebody pinches somebody or you do something silly. And so but there's all of that in this piece. And it's also still regal. There's this this duality of the fun and the joy of family and the beauty of all these faces. Mm -hmm. There's also this regal aspect to it, too.
6: Yeah, my grandmother, she was very regal. She was all about family, all about, you know, you go to school, you look good on Sunday, you take care of your body, you take care of your face, you put your lotion on, you eat food at the table, you don't disrespect, you do not talk back. So we had a good household. We had... Raising good children was what her pride was. Her pride was her grandkids, she told us that. Once I got into the more modern um, portrait painters like Handy Wiley, I studied a lot, a lot of classical painting, like the um, Michelangelos. I studied uh, the Titians and I studied the Raphaels. And I loved all of that stuff. A lot of people were talking about things like, well, this might not apply to you. You might see this different because you're African-American. I said, nah, this, this stuff is so rich. We were here. We were here and during that time. We were in these places, you know. I was so anti being being boxed in into those places. Just okay. Well, what does your experience have to do with this person's experience? And from one point of view, us living this this many centuries later, it's just how how can I explain that in in so many in so many in so many paintings? You know, um, it's just like I paint because of I consider this like. A new tradition, you know, a new way of participating as a young black man in society to to try and overcome, well, frankly, the things that are being taken away from us right now.
8: And I think that we we have more to say than what's typically being seen.
6: I have as much to do with, um, with, with uh, Titian in Spain as he has to do with me, you know what I mean? But this painting, it says so many things about who I am now. Now I am the embodiment. Now I have power. Now I am speaking to that power because it was given to me by a different ancestor, and that ancestor wanted me to assume my position as the painter that I am. So I think I, I think that I think that is uh, is just showing my appreciation through the paintings more than anything, and in the, in the, to keep the keep the hope and the struggle and the and the faith alive and continuing through me onto the next generation.
1: And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Colin Morgan, Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, and Donifer Field. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate.
0: And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Be sure to subscribe to the Local News Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And listen to, up next, Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks. Good night.
5: W-O-R-T,
4: Madison.